Okay. Okay. Are you are you retiring? Well, good to see everybody. Welcome. Um, I know this is kind of intense at the moment. Once more it comes up, then we'll sit down and chat for a bit. Um, but maybe I will just introduce uh, everyone to the United Methodist Church in Madison that hasn't been here before. Come on up. You're the guest of honor. Okay. <laughs> we may have folks kind of wandering in for a little bit. Uh, I know we have some other people that are showing up for this event. And we have final week study nights for three students. And this week until 2 a.m. So if you see students randomly showing up, and we'll let them be on the way. They're using the space for that. Uh, we also may have people dropping off food, so if anyone feels led to bring food to students, uh, they will be with us again tomorrow morning. And then email that information and we get to pass some of these professors' tests. <laughs> <laughs> Here, uh, we, I'll say that this is kind of an outgrowing. We've had different Drew faculty here before, Dr. Kearns, um, Dr. Keller, a number of different people, and often we'll do it in the library as kind of a Q&A conversation as an outgrowth of some of our adult Christian education work that we do at the church. Um, because of the recent decision that's happened with the Special General Conference, because this is a church that is journeying through trying to become an even more welcoming, affirming, empowering congregation for LGBTQIA folks, we felt like we needed to engage a little bit more contextually what was just happening in our own movement. I think some of us joined this church or other Methodist churches just because we liked that church, not because we really know that much about Methodism. <laughs> we just, it was on the corner, pastors were nice, it was a good community for us. 
Um, so getting a little bit of background would help us to know kind of what we're in the middle of right now. Others of us are very committed to Methodism. I'm looking at Dave Green, Vivian Bull, members of this church, who uh, I often go to as my own historians when I'm trying to figure out what we're facing. Um, but then the question doesn't just become what's going on in our denomination, it becomes how do we respond as a community in this time, in this place, to these people. So because of that, we thought we'd kind of expand it a little bit. I know Drew kind of decided to blast this out because Dr. Davis was going to do a talk on campus tomorrow, and I didn't know that. I kind of grabbed him before they planned that, so we got him first. That's um, true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because, I don't know if I'm in the mic right now, um, but because we had uh, planned this well ahead of time, they decided to just forego their event and let people know this was happening. So it may be a little bit more of a mixed group of some folks over from the school, um, some folks here from the church. Um, but because of that, normally it's a fairly informal kind of gathering where we ask questions back and forth. But I thought I would kind of set Dr. Davis up with some questions that could help lay the foundation a bit. Um, I will also say that we do a Tuesday night small group that we've done for a long time on kind of faith in action or uh, Christianity and justice work. In the past, we focused a lot on race and economics. Uh, this year, we've been really focused on LGBTQIA folks, um, kind of the history and theology of the church and how they've been impacted by that. So in some ways, this, this conversation was a request from that group to say, I'd really love to ask some questions of this history professor that um, wrote about some other moments, other controversial, other moments that had to do with questions of justice and injustice in the church. Um, we'd really like to ask some follow-up questions so that we can get a sense of kind of what we're in the middle of. Um, so some of you are in that book group that we've had going for quite a while here. So, so come with your questions ready to go. Um, others, we have these microphones because uh, they decided to record it because we had people saying, I can't come and I really want to hear this conversation. I think it'd be really helpful. So that's kind of why we're set up a little bit intensely here. Um, but all that to say, I hope you feel like you can, you can approach it. And once we get to the Q&A time, um, after we let Dr. Dave speak for a little bit, um, you can all jump in with whatever questions you have. The last thing I just want to say is this is the first of a kind of two-part series. Dr. Jen Quigley is a member of the church here. Um, does anyone know Dr. Quigley? I know some of the students know her, have studied with her. Um, she is going to do a conversation around gender and sexuality in the Bible next week at the same time. So this week we decided to focus a little bit on history. Next week she's going to come in and really kind of run the show when it comes to what are those passages that all of us get thrown back at us sometimes in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. How do we engage that in a way that doesn't get rid of the Bible, <laughs> in a way that allows it to still be a resource, um, but in a way that's nuanced, in a way that reads it contextually, and also with a kind of preliminary or primary commitment to our LGBTQIA neighbors, right? That that isn't the move we get to after we decide what we think about the Bible, but that's the starting place. Um, so I really hope you all join us for that, because I think it'll be a really helpful follow-up to this conversation. Um, so I think those are all the announcements for now. Um, I will say at the end of our time together, Kelly Crondon, who was one of our members, uh, wanted to just give an announcement from the perspective of the laity of the church and some, some movements and some action that they're taking in relationship to this event. So once we finish up, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. Um, by way of announcement, uh, I want to introduce Dr. Maury Davis. Let's say thank you for him joining us. <laughs> Um, Dr. Davis is a professor of history and Wesleyan studies over at Drew Theological School. 
Um, he has also read lots of my papers and exams and things, so I'm very grateful that he's decided to join us. They were us. all good. They were all good. I don't know. That's very generous. Um, but one of the things that's been great, I know for me, about working with Dr. Davis, and I think what he brings to the conversation around Methodist studies, is he's done a lot of work on another moment where the Methodist Church had to decide about division and what, what they were calling unification or reunification. Um, around the issue of slavery, around slaveholding bishops. And then again, once they kind of came to that unity moment about coming back together as a denomination, around integration and segregation and how they were going to order the church. Uh, So the reason Dr. Davis is kind of a helpful conversation partner for us is because he knows Methodism well, he knows Wesleyan history well. Um, He also knows specifically the details of how important general conferences and conferences can be to big decisions like this. So for those of us that are thinking, okay, we've been trying to live a certain way in ministry, and this thing happened in St. Louis, and I don't understand why I have to respond to that. I don't understand our relationship to that decision. Um, he can give us some helpful context there. Um, but also drawing some of the connections between race, other justice movements, and what we're kind of facing right now. Um, so the first question I wanted to throw that I thought could maybe set the stage a little bit, I had a quote that I wanted to read from your um, your book, but you say that the importance of conferences to Methodists, both as a political body and as a sacred act of gathering, is difficult to overstate. It's the distinctive expression of the church for Methodists. It's the primary location for political power and spiritual authority. Um, So I know we have some non-Methodists in the room, um, or for those of us that came to it late. Can you just maybe give us a little bit of an understanding of the role of general conferences and annual conferences and why they're so sticky when it comes to big decisions being made like this and how local churches are trying to respond, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, thank you. That's also a huge question. <laughs> Russ Ritchie wrote a book about it. I could just sort of send you that way and do some reading. Um, but thank you. Thank you for having me, first of all. Thanks for asking, Scott. Uh, that's a good place to start because I do think Methodism can be confusing if you're not in the middle of its mess, um, and its, its polity is unlike many other denominations, and its polity is based on an 18th century revival movement, right? That's the difference, and I think that's also why it's hard to understand, maybe in 2019, how the conference thing works and why it feels like it serves so many different purposes, why it's so mysterious. Uh, the conference began in the 18th century under the Wesleys when Methodism began as a movement that was supposed to resuscitate a supposedly dying or at least lukewarm Anglicanism in the 18th century. And the conference was for the ministers. That's what it was for. Uh, The ministers were sent out um, to visit parishes all over England and eventually Ireland and eventually even in, not annual conferences, but eventually even in the colonies. And the conferences, when the ministers came back, they met in both quarterly and in annual conferences. And that was where they were both held accountable, it's where they were taught, it's where they met together spiritually, it's where they learned what they were supposed to do, it's where they were given instruction, it's where they received assignments. And it was the one place where they gathered together alone as themselves. So conference was for ministers. Uh, And the idea of meeting annually has remained the the central part of Methodist organization, and that's what we have here in New Jersey, the New Jersey, Greater New Jersey Annual Conference. And it is actually the one place that everything else in the many, many spokes of the Methodist wheel come back to. 
So one thing to remember about conference in, in the Methodism, United Methodism, is that the annual conference is actually at the center of everything. The general conference is not in charge necessarily. The, what, the one place with levers, the one place that actually assigns where you go, the one place that ordains people, the one place that finds bishops, that's the annual conference. Uh, and so there's this weird mix of authority, this weird, it's not really designed as a checks and balances, but there's a weird set of balances in Methodist policy, polity. Uh, and that is the annual conferences actually hold most of the actual tangible levers of authority. And so the general conference has done a lot this year. And you've been hearing a lot about what the general conference has done and then what the judicial council has decided about those decisions. But what is most interesting is what the annual conferences will actually do in response to that. Because there's not, as I said to Scott earlier today, there's not a kind of Methodist police force making sure everybody follows the rules. Um, annual conferences have a lot of latitude in how it is they will carry out what they've been told to do or what they've been told not to do. So what's going to be very interesting over the next uh, few months when conferences meet over the summer is to see which conferences say, I didn't hear you, which conferences say, yes, we heard you, we're definitely going to follow that up because that's what we wanted, which conferences kind of do things in the back door. I mean, we really don't know exactly how people are going to respond. Um, but the quote that you, that you read back to me is that... Um, there's a dual role for conference that I think a lot of people are trying to get back. I think those of you in, um, who go to the New Jersey annual conference under, the, under Bishop Scholl see this. Conference used to be also revival in the American tradition. When you went to annual conference, maybe especially when you went to quarterly conferences, it was church. It was preaching. It was singing. It was worship. That part, especially now when so many difficult decisions are being made uh, and so much acrimony is being displayed, that part seems a little lost. But it's also part of the dual nature of Methodism that to me makes it interesting and also tragic. Uh, and I, I was just chatting with a few students who have been in a couple of my classes and they were giggling with me about how my reputation is not exactly that of an optimist or one who has a, a general sense of positivity about the direction of the United Methodist Church or the nominations in general. I, they're not wrong. Um, but also, it's, it's part of what happens in United Methodism, and that is the conference is supposed to be the place where that great energy that built a very large denomination is still supposed to be expressed. There should be some connection between the good experiences people have in churches, in congregations, sitting here on the pews on Sunday, and what happens in the church in its more political realms. That seems to be where the divide has happened these days. So there's even talking about the history of Methodism, there's two distinct ways to talk about it. One is the tremendous spiritual vitality that has been carried along by millions of Methodists over the last couple centuries. And the other is the way that great spiritual vitality and the trust that has been built by those people to their leadership has been squandered. Those are two very different things. And so what do you do when you try to talk about a tradition that has such an immensely powerful spiritual heritage and a really dark institutional journey. Um, those two things are hard to, to talk about in tandem, but you kind of have to. And the conference embodies both those things. Right. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's super helpful. I think what's interesting, the optimism piece, I find really helpful, especially in the context of my own work. So working with Dr. Davis for me is interesting because I do theology and he is a historian. And often that's kind of where we'll have these great conversations about the history of the church. And then we kind of get to this point where Dr. Davis just has to be like, 
now go do theology, I yeah. guess, because <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that, right? It's like there's a sense of I don't know how to do anything constructive, you know, or I don't know how to respond constructively because it's, we're pretty bleak in the moment. Um, and I think my response to him often, kind of in that, in that joking state, is I'm actually probably equally as cynical in some ways. Um, I wouldn't describe myself as optimistic in terms of when I think of things like hope or when I think of things like, you know, the kingdom or the kingdom of God or these, these theological concepts that are supposed to propel us forward. For me, that isn't an optimism that the church is right, you know. There's faithfulness to God at times means unfaithfulness to the church. Um, but it is a recognition that we have to, we have to move and take actions forward. Um, even in that state of not being optimistic. Uh, this is me kind of in pastor mode of some of the fear that I often see is how do we as church people not experience the concern or the frustration or the fear in a way that paralyzes us, right? We can be not optimistic and still take steps forward. And I think that's where like these resources are super helpful as we try to figure out how to take steps forward without being unrealistic about the fact that this is a predictable kind of thing that we've seen in our own denomination for a while. This isn't the first time we've seen the denomination try to self-preserve in a certain way um, in order to maintain a sense of influence. Um, So anyways, that's also a way of getting to another question I wanted you to kind of tease out from your book. I should have said that the name of Dr. Davis's book is The Methodist Unification, Christianity, and the Politics of Race in the Jim Crow Era. Um, And really what uh, got me connected to you, I think, originally, was this argument that you had in that book that in 1939, uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church South had been divided over a disagreement about a slaveholding bishop in the South. After a number of years, they came to this conference in 1939 called the Uniting Conference, and they decided they wanted to kind of reunify institutionally, these three movements they wanted to bring back together. Um, And they were faced with this decision. Do we create a church structure that is integrated or segregated, right? So we're we're facing questions around white supremacy, around Jim Crow South, around racism. Um, And and the decision that they had to make was, or the decision that they kind of decided to make, I guess, and you can expand on this, is which one will help us maintain our influence? (laughs) Which one will help us maintain our size, our power, our kind of... uh, national influence in the current context of the country. And in that moment, they chose segregation instead of integration as the structure of the church. Um, But so I guess my question to you is maybe you can talk a bit about how they made that decision in that particular moment, um, why they felt like they had to to maintain kind of church power and no matter what. Um, And how much is that a part of what you're seeing and what we're facing right now? Do you think that same sense of kind of self-preservation, but also maintaining a certain kind of national influence um, is keeping the church from being able to take steps toward a certain level of actual justice work and actual advocacy for those that Mm. need to be included. Mm. Yeah, the... Well, the decision for for a more officially and deeply segregated Methodist church took many years of negotiating. But 1939 was the year that uh, the Methodist Church was created from a northern Methodist Church, a southern Methodist Church, which was uh, completely white, and the Methodist Protestant Church, which was an earlier breakaway in the 1820s. Um, So it took many years of negotiating for that to happen. Uh, 
they had split in 1844, officially 1845, over this question of slaveholding. The story for me of that uniting conference in 1939 that brought these two churches back together really begins with the second printing of the discipline in 1796. And the reason I take it that far back is because the first discipline of the Methodist Episcopal Church said that no member of of the Methodist Church, of the Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, can own slaves. And it took less than six years for the church to walk that back really quickly. And that despite the fact that there were slaves, former slaves, and white leaders of the denomination that had disavowed slavery, certainly the owning of slaves, from its very beginnings. Wesley, as the most prominent and influential of the Methodist leaders, John Wesley, had written quite strongly against slavery as an institution, as a practice, and certainly that Methodists shouldn't own slaves. But what happened between 1784 and about 1796 um, is that the leadership of this burgeoning denomination called Methodist Episcopalism realized that they were not going to be as big as they could be if they kept people out of the church who owned slaves. And so the the denomination began walking back its rules very quickly. And every quadrennium from about 1796 into the 1820s, there's a less and less difficulty in being a Methodist and owning slaves. Um, and the reason I go back that far to talk about the 20th century creation of a highly segregated church uh, is that it's the pattern then that seems to hold for the way that Methodists organize themselves from their very beginning in the first decade, for me, and the way to understand is even into the contemporary moment, and that is primary in all decisions will be how big and influential can we be? And how will we organize ourselves in a way that allows for the greatest expansion of membership and allow us to say to the culture we exist in, we have this many members, we are in this many towns, we have this kind of influence, and thus we will be able to, as they said in those days, spread scriptural holiness throughout the land. That was the early watchword uh, of early Methodists. It's still there in the discipline. It doesn't get much more attention anymore, but to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land uh, was a phrase that described what Methodists thought they were up to, what their mission of the church was. And so from the very, and this means Francis Asbury too, right? The statue at the front of, of Drew. He was fine with pulling back the disciplinary prohibitions against owning slaves. And so I go back that far to say that became the question over and over and over again when Methodists disagreed about who belonged. Yes, but what will it do to our influence? Yes, but what will it do to our size? Yes, but what will we do without all those very wealthy Southerners who are building some really gorgeous churches? Um, And what will we do, uh, Northern industrialists, without the money that we get from the cheap goods built in the South by slaves that were building our gorgeous churches in the North? In other words, it, the, the web of what it meant to be smaller, to be less influential, and to condemn an entire part of the country, that web of connections was not just one on a spiritual level, but it became one on an economic level, on a social political level. Uh, and it meant the difference in what it would mean to become the Christian group that most influenced 
the burgeoning United States. So in other words, what we watch from the beginning of Methodism up until they split is that there is no national church in the United States, right? This is the first Western nation without a national church coming out of Europe. The United States is the first nation out of Europe in the Western world to not have a national church, not have a state church. So who's going to be that the primary influencer, right? There's a, there's a market, an open market then, um, a marketplace of Christian ideas, a marketplace of Christian denominations. Who's going to be the most influential in this nation without a state church? Methodists realized quite quickly that they could be that. They could be that central, non-official, unofficial institution. Um, and by the 1830s, by the 1840s, it became quite clear that the Methodists were probably going to win that kind of influence. And one of the ways they, in, they were going to win that was by a tighter and tighter polity, by a more and more centralized way of organizing themselves, and by staying together. So as soon as the Civil War was over, it wasn't like Methodists decided to get together in 1939. As soon as the Civil War was over, Methodists from the North and Methodists from the South began to talk about getting back together right away. They wanted to pull, it, they wanted to pull themselves back to a national church. They felt ashamed. Uh, they felt the loss. They felt a quite distinct loss of resources. And so the conversations didn't really even begin in the 1910s. The conversations really began uh, in 1866, 1867. In fact, the bishops of both churches met in 1872 to begin a way forward to pull the two churches back together again. And the primary issue really was what it would look like in congregations. The primary issue really was who was going to be members. Um, and from the beginning, there was a great, uh, a great amount of influence, not just from the South, but from the North. In other words, I, this story is not about Southerners wanting to make the church racist. This story is about white supremacy in the United States, right, which had different forms in the North and the South and the Midwest and the West. Uh, and so what happened in the later part of the 19th century, all up until that very, um, on the surface of it, triumphant moment in 1939 when finally these two great churches pulled themselves back together institutionally, uh, was this long, long argument about who really were God's creatures, how do we differentiate ourselves from each other, how has God differentiated ourselves from each other, who represents God's best idea of the church in the world? And the language that Methodists chose for most of that conversation was a very heavy nationalist civilizationalist language, which was, we represent the best of Christian civilization on the planet. And really, the white Methodists are doing better at that than the rest of them. So what we need to do is have a church that represents who's gotten there already. I, I, I'm not saying this in a more exaggerated way than they did. In other words, in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, white Methodists talked about Christianity known by how civilized, educated, wealthy, and sophisticated you are. And so they talked quite explicitly about needing African-American Methodists to work their way up to a proper and um, fulfilled state of Christian civilization that they did not think they were there, uh, ready for yet. And so, rather than post-slavery, the elimination of institutional racism in the, in the Methodist churches, you actually got deeper and more complicated and more sophisticated and much, um, much more substantive institutional racism all the way up until 1968. 
As an example, the United States military desegregated decades before the Methodist Church did. They figured out a long time before the Methodists that segregation was not good for the way that they operated. So by the time you got to 1939, this question of how do we re- return to our, to our place uh, in the United States as the primary Christian influencer in the United States became the central way that Methodists answered the question, who is my brother? I don't, and that's about as theological as I can put it. Or, uh, how do they answer the question, what is the church? In other words, what's their ecclesiological question? What is the church? Well, the church is the place where we display that we have attained God's greatest civilization on the planet. That became the mission of the church. How do we best make the church go forward? Well, we organize it in a way so that those who are really the most civilized amongst us, who are the best Christians amongst us, are running things. You can't have, in other words, someone from a child race, to use the language of that era, pastoring a church of those who are not the child race. That's not equal. That's not the best way to run an institution. So I don't know that that's exactly the kinds of thinking in 2019 when Methodists look at each other and say, I think this is what God wants for the church, and this one says, no, this is what I think God wants for the church. I don't know that why <laughs> staying together becomes the primary concern in that. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a question that I'm still wrestling with. But I do know that over and over and over again, what Methodists have done is choose unity, size, scale, and influence over and against their disparate versions of what the church should be. Now, I, that's, that's interesting, historically. Yeah, and if I could just real quick follow up on that, and that we are going to kind of open it up for people to ask questions, too, so that we're, we're staying within our time frame. But an interesting follow-up to that. So the name of the conference in 39 was called the Uniting Conference. Yeah. Um, for those that followed the special general conference that was going on uh, in the Methodist Church, a consistent refrain, especially from moderate, I would say, type folks, um, was to maintain church unity. Uh, if you even look at the United Methodist website, when they put the event out, if you go to that link, it says the Way Forward Commission, you know, um, to, I think, respond to the question of gender and sexual orientation and maintaining church unity in the United Methodist Church. So this question of unity comes up a lot. <laughs> um, and yet, I think for a lot of people, though unity, just like other positive theological concepts, sound good and positive, and as a way of being the church at its best, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to necessarily be on the side of justice. So just, and I think you got at this, but can you give us a sense, what do you think unity is meant to um, identify for Methodists, both mm-hmm. maybe in the context of your book, but now when they say unity, mm-hmm. um, because then I think in a lot of cases you have pastors like myself, like Pastor Taylor, Pastor Kate, you know, um, community members everywhere that hear that language and we think, okay, so we should go into our local context and we should talk about maintaining church unity. Because maintaining church unity is not only the call from the bishop, but it's a, it's a positive missional move, right, that we can do in our own community. And yet what I'm hearing <laughs> is that to pursue unity does not necessarily um, lead us toward maybe what we would call, call justice or inclusion, affirmation, empowerment. Um, that, that you, there's something at stake yeah. when we claim unity. <laughs> there's a lot at stake. Well, there's a lot of ways to get at your response. I mean, one, one way that, one, another detail from, from much of the history of these multiple conversations about unity. I mean, you can go all the way again, of course, and talk about 
the exit of African Americans in Philadelphia it, within 15 years of the, of the of the start of the Methodist Episcopal Church, who also left over reasons of of, of lack of gracious racial inclusion, um, and that, by the way, that there was never an attempt, a serious attempt by the larger white denominations to try and pull those back in. So that, that's an interesting way to think about it. Unity has always meant, those unity conversations have always been with white-dominated Methodist groups. There's never been any serious discussion um, that there would be some return of the AME, right? I mean, that's just not happened, uh, not in a serious way. But one of the other details that you see in these conversations over and over and over again, mostly at the general conference level, but not always, is... Um, so let's use the example uh, from, that you'd see this in my book. There's a tremendous amount of work through the dialogue of the negotiations in that book. And they d- agreed at the beginning of their, of their debates about how we're going to bring these two churches together. Well, how, what are we gonna, how are we going to make this, dis- this decision? What are the values? What are the, what are the, the things we agree on? Well, they, they decided right from the beginning that there's no way that they could agree on a biblical interpretation of the unity of the church or on what it meant... Uh, how we're supposed to understand racial difference um, or racial unity. There was no theological resource. So they actually said at the beginning of their negotiations, we will not talk about theology. We will not talk about biblical interpretation. We will not use doctrine, and we will not use the tradition. Our primary goal is a pragmatic decision for how do we stay together or how do we get ourselves back together. But we won't talk about doctrine because we know we won't agree. We won't talk about the Bible because we know we won't agree. And we won't talk about the tradition because we know that doesn't really help us. We both have two different interpretations of the tradition. Well, that's a fascinating decision for a church to make, to make a decision about itself. We recognize right from the beginning that we are so far apart on the central sources of authority in our tradition that we're not even going to use them. So, (laughs) again, what, in other words, I don't know exactly what's pushing people towards unity at the moment. And I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's... I don't know that everyone knows why we keep thinking it's so important. I do think that institutions pass along certain kinds of tendencies, right? Uh, and there's, there's a lot of theoretical work that, that, that talks about this kind of thing, that there are certain kinds of emotional traditions, certain kinds of unspoken uh, traditions or, or sensibilities or ethos that get passed along in traditions. And I think one of those is that unity is important, right? There's a kind of an anxiety around it. What if we split up? This is a bad thing. We know that amongst Methodists. You can take it all the way back to the 18th century. Wesley never wanted to leave the Anglican Church. That was not what he wanted to do. Um, he did not, uh, for lots of complicated reasons, but it's something he, he openly uh, disavowed. And so, in other words, Methodism began as a renewal movement, but not as something that was intended to break things up. Uh, and Wesley was explicit that schism was not something Christians should do. Schismatic, or, or the schismata, right? He goes all the way back into ancient traditions of, of breaking apart, and he was against it. So he didn't want the Americans, for instance, to start their own church, but he realized it was going to happen, and he tried to, he tried to help them forward with that. So there's, there's something all the way back to the 18th century that within Wesleyanism that staying together is its own good thing, right? Partly, I can, I can come up with a way to think about that in a, in a pastoral sense. Wesley thought that the gathering was the thing. Right? He built societies. It's not enough to go to church on Sunday. It's not enough to take communion from your priest. What's really important is that you build community, that you hold account, each other accountable, that you worship as many times as you can, that you take communion as often as you can. Right? Wesley thought that it was the community that mattered. I'm speaking maybe a little bit glibly here with that word. It's not an 18th century word. But Wesley built small communities in order to build up the larger church. 
He built smaller churches to build the larger church. And that's how he, that's how he saw its purpose. Um, so I think some of that spirit survives amongst Methodists, that it feels like Methodists just ought to stay together. Also, Methodists really understand themselves and describe themselves in historic or narrative terms. What's the first thing in the discipline, uh, students from our classes? What's the first thing in our discipline? <laughs> it's the history. The first thing in the discipline is the history. Uh, in other words, who are Methodists? And it's one of the things that Wesley wrote over and over and over again. Let's tell a story. The story is there were some young men. They were very earnest, but the church wasn't enough. They decided to get disciplined, get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, read their Bible all the time, go to prisons, visit the poor, um, give all they could, be all they could. And what got built was the spiritual movement. Right? That became this. And so the story is important. I think part of that unity is that Methodists understand themselves in a historical narrative. And no one really wants to be the ones to break that and say, we blew it up. It was a good thing for three centuries and we messed it up. At this point, I'm historically guessing. (laughs) But there is something about um, the way Methodists understand themselves, the way they talk about who they are. And, and we don't have time for this tonight, the polity is so convoluted that it makes it difficult to do anything in some ways. So there's also the question of the way it's organized and how it is then that unity can be negotiated with immense difference. Right. As we talked about with the, with the annual conferences, because no one's really going to come and police annual conferences, so many different people just survive with completely different ideas about what the church is and who the church should be. That's a lot of complicated responses to your answer, but I do think it's not a simple thing why unity remains at the center. But it's also been, from the beginning almost the primary concern of, of, of conferences, of general conferences. Yeah, and we'll now take some questions from folks that have some things they want to ask of Dr. Davis uh, directly. I'll just, I'll say on that, for those of us that have been in this book group conversation together for a while, <laughs> you know that we've come to this question of unity uh, a number of times, that especially, you know, we started this conversation before February. We continued it after February. <laughs> and in both cases, we're sitting there going, so, okay, if the language of unity that's being discussed here excludes our LGBTQIA pastors, members, you know, neighbors, selves, all of that, um, then how are we going to use unity in a way that actually has some content for us? <laughs> how are we going to claim unity in a way that isn't kind of an abstract notion that just means we're in institutional connection together, but in a way that actually has some bones to feeling accountable to each other? Um, that's an open question we're all still dealing with, I think. I think our group has not nailed down necessarily how to engage that discourse um, of unity, even things like loving our neighbor that we throw out, these things that sound so positive and benevolent and ministerial, (laughs) and yet they're getting worked out in such a way that doesn't look like advocacy, that doesn't look like taking responsibility for our own actions, for our privilege, for our neighbors that don't have that same level of privilege. Um, So people here are used to me always trying to say, let's define our terms when we're talking about these kinds of theological concepts. But I think this is just a really good example of that, of saying unity is something that we can use in some ways to maintain the status quo really effectively. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet we need to get more particular about what we mean. So so I want to open it up right now um, to just what questions some of you have that you'd like to throw out to Dr. Davis that he can respond to. They can be the simplest question about Methodism you don't, yeah. you don't get, or they can be big, broad 
meta ones, as you can tell, he's capable. Yeah, of I answering. sort of did meta for a while. But we can do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can do little works. things too. Uh, you you had actually asked about how this got started in '72. We can talk about yeah, that yeah. also if you yeah. wanted when the clause was inserted, right. that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I, for sure. Talk about that. Later. Yeah, would that be helpful? We had um, this was a question actually from some of our our members in our book group, which was kind of what was the context of this incompatibility clause that came in in 1972 um, that basically was the initial entry into the Book of Discipline about language saying that homosexual practice is incompatible with Christian teaching. It's a, it's a phrase that you've heard probably repeated a lot. Um, so, but what surprised I know a lot of folks in the church was that that wasn't something that was in there from the beginning, kind of ex nihilo, right? It was yeah. something that actually showed up in the recent history. Um, so why? What was going on? Was this a reflection of the counterculture movement? Was this a reflection of post-World War II? You know, what's going on in our context that's making that, yeah. that happen? And then maybe think of your question and be ready to jump in. Yeah. I can do a short version. There's a really long version of that, as there are version, long versions of most everything. Uh, the short version is that it wasn't much of a conversation among Methodists, certainly at the general conference level, much at all before uh, 72, 71 or 72. And the issue was forced somewhat by two trials of ministers who had come out as openly gay. So that put it on the radar a little bit. People were thinking about it. Um, But a lot of it um, honestly came from the much more public work at Glide Memorial under Cecil Cecil Wilson. Williams. Why am I blanking for a second? Uh, So the Glide Memorial work in the 60s, late 50s and early 60s in San Francisco where they were working um, with many different uh, underrepresented groups, people on the margins, and one of the ones that that Reverend Williams identified, one of the groups that he identified that he just wasn't aware was part of the homeless population was young young gay men who had been pushed out of every single social circle they had in life and become uh, homeless and were showing up at Glide Memorial as homeless, and he realized the problem was one he hadn't encountered before in terms of the causes. And so Glide became a very public advocate and one of the only real advocacy congregations within Methodism around these kinds of issues. And they, they, they put together a kind of a study group of ministers in the San Francisco area. So it, it was slowly reaching the, the attention of the, the core of Methodists by the late 60s. And then once the church got past its, uh, its 68 creation, it, it really hit the radar. And then, interestingly, uh, the young people of the new United Methodist Church were pushing the topic uh, very, very strongly. And so Motive Magazine, which was, um, which was the primary uh, pr- publication of Methodist youth at the time, began uh, putting out many editorials exploring the issue of, of homosexuality in, in the church and in society in general. And th- they made people so angry that they lost their funding and shut motive down forever uh, in 1970, late 72, 73. Uh, so it, there were, it came from a couple different places. So it's both from the general countercultural movement, but also there were a few things within the church that had brought it forward. The language itself was proposed on the conference floor in 1972. So the, the sentence about incompatibility came from the floor. There was a proposed language that had come from a working group um, that was about uh, language about civil rights and human rights, saying that they're still using all the language of just homosexual persons was primarily the language at the time. But homosexual persons are of sacred worth, so the phrase we're all familiar with, that had come to the floor from a group. It was already written in a draft. 
um, and the language about civil rights and hu- their civil and human rights need to be um, protected by the church. And, but that wasn't enough for the general conference, and so from the floor came this addition of the incompatibility uh, language. There was also some stronger language in there, and the language about marriage was introduced at the next conference. Um, but that's the brief story. It, it, it really wasn't on the radar. The race issue in terms of um, the central jurisdiction and segregation had been primarily what, what, it, what had been the most fraught topic, but after, after 71 at the General Conference 72, it became sort of forefront. And then it's never left, right? It's been discussed ever since, the incompatibility clause. So. In Glide Memorial, just to kind of tap on, for those that have been in the recent manifestation of the book group, is the church that Bishop Karen Oliveto pastored before being elected to the Episcopacy. So a lot of those stories that we read where she's reflecting on her ministry and kind of her own both coming out story and also ministry career um, is, in, is, is another manifestation of that same community yeah. that has always been a real advocacy organization for LGBTQIA folks. Um, Bishop Karen Olivetto, for those that don't know, was the first openly lesbian bishop, um, first openly LGBTQIA bishop in general, um, elected to the United Methodist Church's Episcopacy out of the Western jurisdiction. Um, she's currently over, I believe it is Colorado, Wyoming. Yeah. What was the other one? Montana. Yeah. Um, so she's out kind of in my neck of the woods. I'm from the Western jurisdiction. My ordination is through there. So I, I'm always excited to kind of claim her as a patron saint of the West. But um, She's a graduate of all three schools of Drew. And a graduate of Drew. That's true. She did her, her PhD at Drew and, uh, and undergrad and, and all that. So, yeah. um, so it's a good connection point. And I think it's also a reminder that, you know, you talked about how convoluted the polity structure can be in the church and how the annual conference is the center. And yet, Big decisions are made at the general conference, but really the annual conference has maybe some more authority. And now we have Glide Memorial being kind of one of the instigators for a new way of engaging this particular issue. For me, (laughs) the activist pastor in me goes, okay, so maybe when we're fighting for justice, when we're working on inclusion, the convoluted nature of the church actually gives us some room to do some work and do some leadership on a local level that can have broader currents than we think, right? We're not in a centralized structure that can so easily, (laughs) when there is alternative voices, dissenting voices, minoritized voices, um, we're not in a a polity structure that can so easily squash that um, because maybe because we're a little bit confusingly organized. Um, But if we can use that, let's feel free to use that. and as someone in a very local context right now, I feel that very deeply, that I think the places I have the least amount of hope are at the general conference level and maybe at some of the annual conference levels. As someone that's getting ready for my own kind of commissioning service, the conversations we've had to have in light of what was just passed, of how we're going to handle that moment. Um, a lot of debates, a lot of frustration, a lot of confusion. Um, and yet on the local level, there is the freedom to live a different kind of ministry that is not necessarily under the thumb in the same way that some of those, those conference-type moments are. Um, so that's a digression, but it just, I think it's an interesting kind of component off what you're talking about. Yeah. So does anyone have a question they're just dying to ask? Yeah, Dr. Bull. Yeah. 
Um, and it's been interesting to see how they're a few years behind where we are in this country in terms of what does that mean and who are we and <coughs> how do we go forward from that point. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been most interesting in Vietnam working with the theological school, getting started there where the idea of there being a Protestant theological school in Vietnam is just beyond anyone's imagination, uh, and uh, which has made it very interesting too as to what is this American doing over here, blonde American, <laughs> to do that. But I think in many ways they're they're picking up from instead of going back to the beginning of the questions that had to be asked, they're trying to pick up from where we are today and what does it mean to their institutions. Uh, Africa University has been a good examine uh, of what can bring be brought together from that point. I was on the board of that for several years, but use that in Africa. It doesn't work in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, but trying to see what the next step is uh, for our Methodists in Vietnam who will now have their own school wow. as we go forward. But it's been fascinating work. Right, the question of unity on a global scale is in a different one entirely. Right? Entirely. You think about how much, how much diversity there is, and I don't, I don't mean identity diversity, how much diversity of concerns, different concerns there are just in the United States in terms of region. That's right. Uh, and then to imagine what it means to be Methodist on the other side of the planet. Unity takes on a, very, a much more complicated uh, cast. I, I was talking to a, to a bishop, I won't say where from, um, a United States bishop last year, and we were discussing the problem of LGBTQI inclusion, and he says, I can't even come close to that where I am. He says, the biggest question in my annual conference is whether or not we're going to allow people to bring handguns into, into their churches. Um, he says, never mind who's preaching. We're more concerned about whether we can bring guns in church that are loaded. That's literally the first thing on the agenda he had at annual conference last year. And I thought, wow, so that's, that's a very different set of Methodist questions, and I have no idea what Wesley would say about that, by the way. <laughs> Right, handguns in a church. But I mean, just to imagine then what it also means to be in Vietnam, considering yourself a Methodist, where a Protestant is as radical as what it would mean to have a Buddhist temple in downtown Madison, right? It's, right. it's that kind of, uh, the identity issues are so, so vastly different. So but that's, they're also seen as being committed to education. Hmm. And I think that's a linkage that particularly in Vietnam has been important. Yeah. That uh, this is a new form of education. And the money was raised to actually buy a building and negotiated with the government about what the rules are in relationship to what we're doing in that building um, and how we can make it open to the larger population. Mm -hmm. We do it by teaching English as a second language. Yeah. And so we can say anybody can come to that. I see. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so this general in the sense that there are some conferences around the globe that have equal voting status, not all do. Um, so that's a yes and no answer. But yes, as far as polity has it, in other words, there's not a Vietnamese representative because those conferences don't have the same status yet as all the conferences in the United States, but there are conferences in Africa, the Philippines, and Europe in particular that had votes at this annual conference. Correct. So we talk about it a lot, as Americans tend to do, as if it's really our problem, but we have decided 
that this is a global denomination. And so mm -hmm. all of a sudden, the questions become much more complicated as Americans still haven't gotten their stuff sorted out yet. Mm -hmm. And then, well, what, is, what does that mean on the African continent? And what does it mean in different parts of Africa? Obviously, Africa not being one place. So yeah, it's, a, it's even more complicated by its global nature. I heard similar numbers. I yeah. don't have them in my head. Yeah, yes. no, those were those are accurate numbers in terms of how the votes went down. I think there's a there's a complicated component to that. I mean, I would just say, kind of from a, a pastor's perspective, um, that you know, I think how we think about our relationship to the global connection is complicated. One of the things I've seen really, really commonly, um, even amongst more moderate to progressive, maybe folks on the side of inclusion, kind of voices, is oh, well, this isn't our problem because we would have voted it in. And I want to be very, very quick to say that that is an unhelpful and problematic and troubling way of articulating what's going on, partially because of how much this particular issue has been our problem throughout the majority of, of not just Methodist history, Christian history, that in the United States we have not been welcoming and affirming. Um, and because of the way our relationship to... Um, conferences or nations or countries or communities outside of the United States has functioned in the past. The power, even though, um, even though we might see growth in certain other countries or, or nations or, or continents at the moment, uh, the power dynamic is still very much held with a, with a strong fist in the United States, I would say. Mm. <laughs> um, in terms of how we're thinking through the decisions that are going to be made, um, it's still very much a a problem in the United States in terms of fighting homophobia and and patriarchy and gender and sexual based violence um, in our own community as well. So it's not to say it isn't a global problem, but it is to say that there is there's complicity, complicity and ownership that I think stems from the United States contingent really fundamentally and foundationally in terms of how they've led and responded in this moment as well. Um, and we need to kind of think through how we can be nuanced about that while also recognizing that uh, that the numbers are what they are. So, um, and if anyone else has comments on that that they want to add, you will feel welcome. But I just have a question. Could you say something about how the decision of the general conference has or will create uh, alliances with other denominations and what those might be, uh, both let's say positive and negative? Uh, I don't know all the conversations that are going on. But there are, but there are a few. Uh, not many officially. There, are, there have been, uh, I know, for instance, amongst the proponents of what was called the simple plan, uh, there have been conversations informally uh, between those folks and some other denominations. I know that's happened. But I think officially the answer would be no to that, right? There's, <laughs> there's not a kind of official conversation about, about other things. But, I, but I'm sure that there are there are dreams, if nothing else, about alliances outside um, of the current set of antagonisms. Where would right? that official conversation come from? Uh, Faith and Order Commission, would that be the right place? Commission on Faith and Order? Yeah. I mean, there used to be an ecumenical uh, body, and I don't think they call it that anymore. So there is an actual body that talks, for instance, there were, there, we hosted conversations here two, two autumns ago. Mm. 
uh, with Anglicans, um, there was there was a, a debate about um, possible. What, what would it mean theologically, you know, for Anglicans and Methodists to get back together? That didn't go very well. I don't know if any of you were here. That actually didn't go well at all. But <laughs> so such things do officially exist. But the question of whether this opens up different kinds of possibilities, I, I think that's kind of an open question. But one of the proposals that had floated before this conference, but was not taken up by the bishops as one of the official three, was a proposal that looked more like a, a sort of set of relationships that could also mean um, that congregations would affiliate, for instance, like we do with the EC, ELCA, for, uh, for which we have, you know, or, ordination is recognized back and forth between the ECLA. So I know some of those were dreamed of before the conference. I don't know how much of that is going on at the moment. I mean, it's an interesting problem to me to watch that, okay, you could actually have someone ordained in the ELCA that allows ordination of those who are in self-avowed same-sex relationships, and then that ordination could technically come over to the United Methodist Church. That's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. There was no, in other words, when that agreement was put together, there was no barrier to that happening. Mm. So I've always wondered about those kinds of, it's mm. kind of a backdoor, I don't know, mm. <laughs> an ecumenical backdoor to the ordination. But yeah. Well, and I'll say the church where I hold my membership, the current pastor, serves both an ELCA church and mm. a UMC church. I think you're seeing more of that in a context like that where it's a rural, small-town situation where churches can't, yeah. can't facilitate a full-time minister, for them there's a financial pragmatic component more than just on this particular issue. But she is an open and affirming and very vocal uh, proponent in terms of inclusion and affirmation. So because of that, this has worked for her in a sense that she's had some inroads to be able to serve in a Methodist context. Um, granted, she's in a hospitable environment. I'm also aware that we have a lot of like practitioners in the room, <laughs> people that belong to churches or, or serve churches. Uh, so I'm just wondering, not necessarily institutional partnerships, but maybe just a simple question if you feel brave enough to share, since the decision of the Special General Conference or just since your experience with Methodism not being an open and affirming space and whatever that means, have you seen more, more folks reaching out from other denominations? Have you seen more opportunities for collaboration ecumenically? Um, has that opened up roads for conversations outside of just other Methodist clergy and ministers um, because of what you're facing and you're trying to find other partners or um, or no? And if no one has anything, that's fine. I just thought you might be more experts on this than us. <laughs> Not so much. Yeah. I've got a question about the Wesleyan Covenant group. I've never heard much about them until the, the question of of inclusion came up, and especially in New Jersey. Mm. I was wondering, you know, how did that group get started, and you know, where, what's their background, and are, are they as conservative as they, they as they seem to be? I I don't know. There's very specific origins. They they come primarily out of um, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas. Their main leadership has been around Nashville, um, and most of the energy has been around this issue, which is why I don't think people heard about them until. Um, until this became much more the larger issue at stake uh, at, the, at the recent general conference. Um, so I don't know exactly how they got started. I don't know if you do either, Scott. I, they, don't, they haven't written their little history yet. Um, but are they as conservative as they sound? Is that what you asked? Or, yeah. Um, or at least they seem to be in New Jersey. Yeah. So, I, I mean, depending on what you mean by conservative, I will say this about when I listen to their, their sort of theological or doctrinal statements, when I hear what they say about biblical interpretation, when I hear what they think, Wesleyanism means, um, when I listen to their use of the word covenant, 
uh, they sound like Southern Baptists to me, honestly. Um, which is true of many of the people that we call conservative United Methodism. They sound a lot more like Baptists than Wesleyans. And so when I say Baptist, uh, I mean that they're primarily interested in a more uh, congregation-centered authority, right? It's much more about um, congregational authority, but also that their view of Scripture is not very Wesleyan in, in that they, they, their biblical methods of interpretation are much more sort of legalistic. They think about uh, biblical theology in terms of covenant, which is not necessarily Wesleyan theology either. Grace is not the biggest thing that they tend to think about, which is Wesleyan um, uh, and not Baptist. So the cast for me in their conservatism is, feels like Southern Baptist conservatism, which is not necessarily in the South, by the way. Right? I, that, that larger movement of um, sort of neo, American neo-Calvinism, for lack of a better word. So... Yes, I think they're conservative, but in a way that sort of takes them a field of what I understand to be Wesleyan theology or Wesleyan doctrine. Um, as I understand it, or certainly as I read it out of the 18th century and the way it's developed in the United States, is that grace is the central thematic doctrinal content of Wesleyan theology. I don't hear that in the Wesleyan Covenant Association. I hear language about accountability, language about purity, language about uh, that's legalistic in the sense of God said this and thus if we don't do this we're doomed right which gets us to that sort of all or nothing thinking that we're seeing in the general conference Um, that's maybe a longer answer than you wanted but it's it's a certain kind of conservatism I also find it unsophisticated honestly the kind of ways they talk about the Bible the way they talk about reading scripture feels very simplistic to me um and I'm not the only one to say that in the world of Wesleyan scholars. There's a lot of Wesleyan scholars that read the WCA, the Wesleyan Covenant Association, as a kind of, um, I, I'm trying to be nicer than I feel, excuse me. It, it, it feels really simplistic to me. And it doesn't feel to me as if it, it pulls together the fullness of a Wesleyan approach to what it means to read scripture uh, in the present moment, in church, with others, in history and with the sense of experience. Um, I, I don't see that with them. So, For those that uh, have been in our groups that we've been doing at the church, you know, we've focused a lot on the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is this idea that the four primary sources for theological reflection in the Methodist church are scripture, as Wesley was clear, that's primary, um, but then tradition, experience and reason are the other three. Um, so I think part of this question, you know, often like the churches I was raised in, for those that know me at all, know I was raised in a very Bible-centered tradition, right? The only source was the Bible. You go to the Bible, you read it the first time through, and whatever that makes you think of, that's the ultimate truth, right? Well, that got me into some trouble, and I had to reevaluate some of my sources for theological thinking. Um, And part of what Wesleyanism offered was some permission to interrogate those initial readings of the scripture with some other sources. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It wasn't, that term is not created by Wesley. It's created by a Wesleyan scholar named Albert Outler. Um, And what you will often find, I think Dr. Davis could even speak to being at some events with other scholars before the annual conference on this, where folks that are less affirming, one of the ways they will attack progressive theology is to say that the Wesleyan quadrilateral is a problem, right? It's uh, that there's a frustration with how central that phrase is to how we think about life and faith in the Methodist Church because it's seen as permission for certain progressive folks to steer away from a certain reading of the scriptures. Um, Obviously, in this church, we tend to see it as an asset. 
Um, but I think that's even an interesting insight into maybe the WCA, some different organizations that are going to say, yeah, well, but the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you might think that's authentically, you know, Scott, you might think that's authentically Wesleyan, but Wesley didn't come up with that, right? Outler came up with that, and he was a progressive, and we can kind of... Um, and that's not to get into this kind of polemical left and right debate. It's just to say that those are some of the dynamics when we talk about how do we claim our own theological commitments as Methodists. Um, there is tension there. There's debate there. And my encouragement is, and my hope, is that we take ownership over how we're going to relate to that as individuals. Recognize our tradition. Try to be faithful to the pieces of it that seem to be on the side of justice. Um, but by following the crowd or deciding what's true Wesleyan theology won't necessarily help us solve the question because <laughs> that's always still up for debate, it seems like. Um, I think, um, you know, your, your comments are super helpful in terms of how we take some steps forward with this. I think what I want to say in relation to the WCA um, as well is that what's, I think maybe kind of setting up Dr. Quigley coming to talk to us next week. She's going to interrogate some of these passages in the scripture that are really kind of scary, <laughs> maybe for some of us. I'm going to get into some of the ways gender and sexuality are, are discussed. Um, and what's really, really interesting, I think, is that even though the arguments made by folks from the WCA might have been that we need to center our, our we need to center ourselves on the Bible. We need to be biblicists, basically. We need to take Scripture as the primary so- source of theological reflection. They called their plan the traditional plan. <laughs> they didn't call it the biblical plan. Um, which just in terms of thinking about this quadrilateral of sources, I find really interesting, which is they are reading the Bible within a particular tradition of U.S. Christian politics. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say they're reading it as a pure source for theological reflection that directly connects us to God. Maybe it was a Freudian kind of slip that they named it that. I don't know. But there is, there's something really insightful in the sense that they called it the traditional plan, and they are in a very real tradition, a very real tradition that sees the Bible as an asset for excluding LGBTQIA people. Um, but it's not actually a what I would argue is a pastor, a biblical plan or a biblicist plan. If you start with reading the scriptures contextually, if you read them in historical context, if you allow the diverse identities in our world to ask questions about those scriptures, um, it will not necessarily land you on the side of total inclusion and, and everything is on the side of justice all the time, which is why we need to think critically about theology. But it also won't lead to some of these easier answers that I think folks like the WCA have tried to right. maybe paint for us. <laughs> um, so that, that was a bit of a rant, but I just think it's, a, it's an interesting component to how the Bible is used as, as this is our only source we're using for these arguments. Um, and yet, hopefully Dr. Quigley will help us understand that if you're faithful to Scripture, you might actually, those arguments might be troubled a little bit. <laughs> um, so I think we are, we've kind of gone probably beyond our time a little bit. I hope everyone feels okay about that. Is there a final question someone just has to get out within a couple minutes that Dr. Davis can answer? So I was, I was heartened after that vote in general conference that a consortium of seminaries stood at the microphone and condemned the vote. And I'm curious, do seminaries who identify as United Methodists have some way of pushing forward with this to bring us back to a more inclusive church? In terms of real institutional power within the denomination, no. Um, But obviously soft power is a real thing in the world. (laughs) So in that way, yes. 
Um, by, by, by institutional power, I mean, there, there's no real connection in terms of fitting within the mm -hmm. polity. The seminaries don't fit within the polity. They don't exist in the discipline in that way, right? Um, but I, I, I do think that there's more to be done from the seminary side. I mean, if, if there's anything that holds a kind of long, singular history within American Methodism, it is, it is its theological schools. Uh, most of which have been around for 150 years. We certainly have, and everybody else pretty close to that. Uh, and it's, we've not all represented a certain ideological strand in all those years, right? That's not, I mean, yes, people say, well, Drew is more liberal than this place or that place, but Drew has a very complicated ideological history as well, and in some ways we represent the complicated nature of the denominational argument while maybe also offering up a model for how it is you exist in a spiritual community while also disagreeing with each other. Um, it's possible. The real question, I guess, is a strategic one. How is it that, that uh, seminaries, for instance, who don't, I mean, what would, what would it mean for seminaries to say what their opinion is? Do we have to get a vote by all the faculty? Do we have to get a vote? You know what I mean? Like, I don't really know what that would mean either. But for the most part, what you saw at the, or what you heard happened at the Special General Conference, I think represents a pretty solid contingent of theological educators that, that are central to United Methodism. And while a lot of people laugh at seminaries and, and scoff at what we do, I do think that we're not without influence in terms of how we can help articulate a future, a constructive future for the church. Um, I know that everybody I work with hopes that we can be that. Um, I would leave it to, to the AUMTS and <laughs> others mm. to, to talk about strategy, but somebody has to step mm. up and, and speak mm. in, in, the, in the, the kind of thin layer of empty void that the WCA has left, for instance, in my opinion. Right? They're, they're not saying much to us other than um, representing a, a, a real lack of grace and, and, a, and a place that does not bode well for the future of, of Christianity, in my opinion. So somebody has to find a way to coalesce the other side of that argument. Um, not necessarily in unity, right, but at least in, in some sort of strength of purpose uh, for, for a certain kind of uh, open spirit, if nothing else. In other words, we don't have to necessarily agree on what the outcome will be. And I don't think you would find that among the seminaries. But I, I would hope, and I think maybe that's what you were getting at, I would hope the seminaries can find a way to work together to put, to put a different message into, into the, the public conversation. Because our press at the moment is not good, right? Um, the newspaper press is terrible about what's happening with United Methodists because it looks a little backwards. Right? <laughs> it's like, what? I thought we were done with that. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I don't. Do you have any other response to that? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's. I work in the administration at, in the theological school, so I'm on a lot of calls actually with all the Methodist uh, schools, conference calls, and things. Um, I would say 90% of them are on the same page in the sense that this was not the place we wanted to go and are working to. In some of our corporate events where all the Methodist schools are present, we're really working to make sure that, that we're having this conversation there. Some things I'm going to be at next fall that's we're already discussing that. Um, I would say the the side of the traditional plan has one or two seminaries that they know are advocates for them, and so those folks choose to 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 separate themselves and kind of be the seminaries of that movement. Um, 
but yeah, I would say for the most part, a lot of the Methodist schools that you all are familiar with are, are on the same page, how coordinated, I wouldn't say we're super coordinated yet. And I wouldn't say <laughs> academics and higher ed folks are always very great at being coordinated. But, um, but in terms of commitments and values, there's a lot of shared values there. Um, yep. We are going to finish up. What I want to say, which is something I always say when we're doing stuff like this, is um, this is like a really difficult event that this movement, that this church is going through. Some of us are much more directly impacted than this by others. Um, I am on the side of being least impacted, right? I'm trying to choose to be in the fire. I'm trying to choose to be in the conversation, just like Dr. Davis, just like many of you um, who do not identify as LGBTQIA in any way. Um, that said, I'm very aware that sometimes when we have these conversations, it feels as though we're giving a lecture about a moment in history that's just like any other moment in history. And yet some of us are sitting here feeling like this, my vocation is at stake. My life is at stake. My call is at stake. My, my person is at stake. Um, and so because of how these things go, this is the format that best gives us the resources to, to operate differently as a church. I hope it felt helpful. Um, but I also don't want the, the tone or the approach or the kind of, you know, the historical deep dive or, or any kind of the, the academic kind of way of interrogating this to take away from the real personal reality that this is impacting us as a church and impacting some of us as individuals on the deepest of ways. Um, and any follow-up conversation that Taylor or I or Kate or any of the many pastors in this room can have, um, I think we're open, open to having that um, and want to have other spaces that don't feel necessarily like we're talking from a distance. It's not from a distance for most of us. Um, also, just know that, that this is a place that is journeying toward further inclusion and affirmation. Uh, I said it earlier, we're not there we're taking steps. We have really good people that care. The pastoral staff is absolutely unified in terms of wanting this pulpit to be shared by any LGBTQIA people that are called and have the gifts and graces for ministry in that way. Um, so if you're a guest here, if this isn't a place that you worship, know that, that is, that's what we aspire to, and yet we're still working on what that's going to look like in practice, so we do it better than we have in the past. Um, but I just want to name that as a sense because it can be easy to get into this mode of feeling like we're, we're just getting into the, the nitty-gritty of, of Methodist history um, without kind of humanizing it a bit. Um, so first, can we just thank Dr. Maury Davis for being with us? Um, and I want to, before we finish up, Kelly Crondon is going to come and make a quick announcement uh, as a member of our church about kind of some actions being taken on this. And then I'm going to have Pastor Taylor come pray to just close this out, if that's all right. So.
Thank you, everyone, for coming. Travel safe. I don't know. Thank you. <laughs> Go in peace. Thanks, Scott.